For the purposes of this podcast, the emergency services are the police, the fire brigade, and emergency medical services, or ambulances to you and me. These three related inventions are often lumped together as one generic emergency service. Their invention has given numerous benefits we now take for granted. See somebody getting attacked and you phone 999 and tell the police. See someone collapse and you call an ambulance. See a fire, you call a fire brigade. It sounds simple and obvious. There had been fire services for thousands of years, but they were not universal in nature. Modern day ambulances began at the start of the early modern period, though I'm not sure how much you would have been wanted to be treated by an ambulance back then. With how much superstition and hocus pocus the medical industry was based on. Indeed, some have speculated that doctors and the like often did more harm than good until relatively recently. Though, in my best patronising voice, at least the effort was there. And it took until the 19th century for a proper police service to become a reality. For the purposes of this podcast, I'm less interested in the tech these emergency services used, though of course it's important, but it was the developments in technology that emergency services could use that really caused their rise. The automobile was perhaps the most important development of the emergency services, meaning they could get anywhere they needed relatively easily. Whilst, of course, the myriad of medicines and the like that have developed over the course of the last few hundred years help to make ambulances actually do something productive. The telephone meant you could ring them up and tell them where they needed to go. But for me, the biggest invention is actually how they became universal services. One of the main themes of this podcast, I think, is that it shows how much better off we are now than at any point in history. The fact that anybody, rich or poor, can use these services, to me, is the great invention. So I think, structuring this podcast, we will take each emergency service one by one. Starting with the least complicated one, the ambulance. Emergency medical treatment can be seen as far back as in the Bible. Whilst during the Middle Ages there was a small growth in battlefield emergency medical treatment with the Knights Hospitaller known for attending battlefield wounds. The French Revolution was the start of many things, with the ideas of liberty, equality and fraternity. There was a move to start attending the sick and dying on the battlefield with something of actual organisation. This was of course when the French were completely reorganising the entire state. During the Revolutionary Wars between the French and the Prussians, Dominique Jean Larry was shocked at the wounded soldiers lying on the battlefield. Larry organised a system for horse-drawn ambulances from the active battlefield, rather than stationed two and a half miles back, as was the current system. These flying ambulances, as they were called, were approved in 1794 and ended service in 1796 in Italy and were later adapted for Napoleon's expedition to Egypt, where they were designed to be pulled by camels. 
However, the first civilian ambulances were made in 1832 for cholera patients in London. The Times of London stated of this new invention, quote, The curative processes commences the instant the patient is put into the carriage. Time is saved, which can be given to the care of the patient. The patient may be driven to the hospital so speedily that the hospitals may become less numerous and located at greater distances from each other. Hospital-based ambulances followed in the 1860s in America, in Ohio and New York, which used some of the medicines of the day to treat their patients. Brandy and morphine were heavily used in these ambulances. As opposed to now, when ambulances get called out because of too many drugs and booze. This service in New York was very popular and grew rapidly. In the United Kingdom, there was a setup of six horse-drawn ambulances for carrying smallpox and fever patients to a hospital. The ambulances were crude, but most importantly for our story is that they were private. You had to pay and contact the hospital, either to send somebody to the hospital or inform them via a telegram. By the late 19th century, an automobile was being developed and started to be introduced alongside horse-drawn models. Early 20th century ambulances were powered by steam, gasoline and electricity, reflecting the competitive automotive technologies then in existence. The first motor-powered ambulance was brought into service in the last year of the 19th century, with the Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago taking delivery of the first automobile ambulance donated in February 1899 by 500 prominent local businessmen. This was followed in 1900 in New York, which extolled the virtues of greater speed of the automobile, more safety for the passenger, faster stopping and a smoother ride. The first two automobile ambulances were actually electric powered, with a two horsepower motor on the rear axle. The first gasoline-powered ambulance was the Palliser Ambulance, introduced in 1905 and named for Captain John Palliser of the Canadian Militia. This three-wheeled vehicle, one at the front, two at the rear, was designed for use on the battlefield under enemy fire. It was a heavy tractor unit cased in bulletproof steel sheets. These steel sheets opened outwards to provide a small area of cover from fire. 9 feet wide by 7 feet high, for the ambulance staff when the vehicle was stationary. The automobile, of course, was the crucial step in making the ambulance a reality. It was able to travel quicker than the horse with a smooth ride, and it was the first real step in the modern-day ambulance. As the song goes, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Well, that's a lie. War has been the start for quite a lot. There were many innovations in battlefield medical care with the masses of injured on the battlefield. These included two-way radios enabling quicker dispatch amongst ambulances, whilst improvements in automobiles allowed for bigger and more efficient ambulances to be developed. Ambulances developed slowly and it was only in the 1960s when CPR and defibrillation became standard use in ambulances. Rather than just taking you to a hospital from where you were injured, 
Serious treatment was not introduced inside the ambulances. In France, the US and the UK, ambulance services became regulated and standardised, making it available and standard for the whole population. Something we shall see is perhaps the best thing about the modern emergency services. Now to the police. And a police force can be seen as far back as ancient China, which should surprise nobody considering the Chinese aptitude for bureaucratic brilliance. In China, law enforcement was carried out by prefects in a system started by the Chu and Jin kingdoms during the spring and autumn period, that's 771 to 476 BC. In the Jin kingdoms, there were dozens of prefects across the country, having a fixed contract and a fixed level of authority. The prefects answered to the governor, who were appointed by the emperor. The prefects would then employ sub-prefects who would help with law enforcement. Much like modern police, they would handle investigations and solve crimes. In ancient Europe, crime was a private matter, not a matter for the state. Even murder was supposed to be a private matter for the families involved. In Athens, the most the police amounted to was 300 slaves used to guard public meetings to keep order. But mostly, any issues were left to the citizens themselves. In Rome, the army provided extra security. Watchmen were hired by some Roman cities to provide extra security, but there was no concept of public prosecution and so victims of crime had to organise and manage the prosecution. There was, by the reign of Augustus, some form of police with the Vigiles, who were both firemen and night watchmen. They would try to apprehend runaway slaves, capture thieves and robbers. Even during the Middle Ages, the idea of centralised police forces was a long way away. Due to lax policing, banditry and other crimes proliferated in medieval Europe and alliances between towns had to be formed to protect the roads from bandits and highwaymen. After the War of Castilian Succession in 1479, Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile established a police force called the Holy Brotherhood to the aim of general policing. In England, most law and order was focused on local lords and nobles as it was their land and therefore their job to maintain it. They often appointed a constable to enforce the law. A piece of legislation in 1252 required constables to stop breaches of the police and to deliver offenders to the sheriff. In around 1500, private watchmen were funded by private individuals to carry out police activities. While the first recorded use of the word police, spelled P-O-L-L-E-S, was recorded in 1642. It should come as no surprise that the first modern centrally organised police force in Europe was in the great centralised country of France. Louis XIV formed it in 1667 and created the Lieutenant General of Police to be the head of the police in Paris. In 1699, this was extended to all of France, resulting in a lieutenant general of police in all large French cities and towns. The origins of the modern police force begins with French theorists and legal scholars in the 17th century. 
One seminal work in this area is Nicolas Delamere's Treatise of the Police, published between 1705 and 1738. The police in this concept was very different to what we have today. The police in this view had an economical and social duty too. Its duties went above law enforcement and saw the police involved in public health, urban planning and price control of goods. The development of the police went hand in hand with the formalisation and development of the state as less of a loose collective of nobles and more into something top down. In 1737, George II began paying some London and Middlesex watchmen with tax money, as opposed to private money. But still, by 1828, there were dozens of privately financed police units. The move towards the founding of the Metropolitan Police Force was a long and arduous one. In 1797, Patrick Calhoun persuaded merchants operating at the Port of London on the River Thames to establish a police force on the docks to stop persistent theft. The idea of a police was resisted by many, as of course it was seen as a French invention, and any foreign ideas especially French ideas, were resisted by a great many of the British. However, Calhoun continued to advocate for his idea, and even went so far as to praise the French system as perfection. In 1797, Calhoun and utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham, who we shall look at in a future episode, persuaded the West Indian planters' committees and the West Indian merchants to invest £4,200 into the venture. The Thames Police Force began with 50 men policing 33,000 workers. In its first year, the force was estimated to have saved £122,000 worth of cargo. Due to the success of the force, the government stepped in and transformed the agency into a public one. The idea quickly spread around the world, with New York City, Dublin and Sydney adopting similar ideas. Calhoun used a cost-benefit analysis to gain support from businesses, and many of his innovations were crucial to the force's success. The force was full-time, salaried, and its employees were prohibited from taking any private money. His other innovation was preventative policing. His police officers were supposed to be highly visible to not only catch criminals, but to deter crime, by having a permanent presence on the river. Populations were rapidly expanding with the onset of the Industrial Revolution, and reaching a size never seen before in a city. It was clear to all that volunteers and private watchmen that were policing London at the time was not cut out for the metropolis that was developing. Robert Peel, as Home Secretary in 1822, established a committee and acted upon its findings to set up the Metropolitan Police Service in 1829. This would be the first modern and professional police force in the world. Today, the ideas behind the police seem obvious, but it was revolutionary at the time. The police force was founded under the principles of Jeremy Bentham, which argued for a strong and centralised 
but politically neutral police force for the maintenance of social order, for the prevention of crime, and to act as a deterrent. Peel set up the force as a paid profession and in a civilian fashion, rather than in a paramilitary fashion, and to make the police answerable to the public. Have you ever wondered why police uniforms tend to be blue? Well, there is a very good reason. The British Army wore red. So, to distinguish the police from the army, Peel made the uniforms blue. This was done so you didn't accidentally think you were talking to an army officer, and to emphasise that the police force was a civilian rather than a military organisation. As to the ordinary person in the 1830s in Britain, might have been forgiven for accidentally thinking that martial law had been put in place. Think about it. If the police were invented today, would the civil liberties organisations be in favour of such infringements of liberties as a centralised police force? To further highlight the difference, there is only one rank of the British police which is also in the military, sergeant. This was attempted to further distinguish the police and the military. The basic guidelines for ethical policing Peel promoted, called the Peelian Principles, are as follows. 1. To prevent crime and disorder, as an alternative to their repression by military force and severity of legal punishment. 2. To recognise always that the power of the police to fulfil their functions and duties is dependent on public approval of their existence, actions and behaviour, and on their ability to secure and maintain public respect. 3. To recognise always that to secure and maintain the respect and approval of the public means also securing the willing cooperation of the public in the task of securing of the laws. 4. To recognise always that the extent to which the cooperation of the public can be secured diminishes proportionately the necessity of the use of physical force and compulsion for achieving police objectives. 5. To seek and preserve public favour, not by pandering to public opinion, but constantly demonstrating absolutely impartial service to the law, in complete independence of policy, and without regard to justice or injustice of the substance of individual laws, by ready offering of individual service and friendship to all members of the public, without regard to their wealth or social standing, by ready exercise of courtesy and friendly good humour, and by offering of individual sacrifice in protecting and preserving life. 6. To use physical force only when exercise of persuasion, advice and warning is found to be insufficient to obtain public cooperation to an extent necessary to secure observance of the law or to restore order, and to use only the minimal degree of physical force which is necessary on any particular occasion for achieving a public objective. 7. To maintain at all times a relationship with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and that the public are the police. The police being only members of the public who are paid to give full-time attention to duties which are incumbent on every citizen 
in the interest of community welfare and existence. Eight, to recognise always the need for strict adherence to police executive functions and to refrain from even seeming to usurp the powers of the judiciary of avenging individuals or the state and of authoritatively judging guilt and punishing the guilty. Nine, to recognise always that the test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder and not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with them. Above all else, an effective authority figure knows that trust and accountability are paramount. Hence, Peels must often quote a principle that, quote, the police are the public and the public are the police, close quotes. To distinguish the police further from the military, police only issued the Met a wooden truncheon and a rattle. No guns or swords or anything deadly. Something I think police forces around the world could still take a lesson from. Following the British lead, many English-speaking countries started following the Peelian idea of the police, with Toronto Police being the first police force formed in the Americas in 1834, and in 1838 the first US police force was formed in Boston. Policing in the US, meanwhile, before the establishment of a Peelian police force was haphazard, to say the least. Perhaps due to the sprawling, huge nature of the Americas, there is a wide variety of policing pre-1838. In the colonies, policing was left to sheriffs and local militias, with various organisations set up to police the country after the foundation of the United States. The US Marshal Service was formed in 1789, the US Parks Police in 1791, and the US Mint Police in 1792. The US Secret Service was set up on July the 5th, 1865, with the legislative documents on Abraham Lincoln's desk the day he was assassinated. Perhaps ironically, as the force would later be charged with protecting the president from assassination. Its original purpose, however, was to suppress counterfeit currency, with one-third of all currency at the time being counterfeit. Clearly, the US Secret Service has never heard of quantitative easing. During the early years of the police, corruption was rife with little oversight and an almost hatred of the police by many, so not much has changed then. However, over time, with inventions such as the police car, the two-way radio and the telephone, the police became more available and far more able to respond quickly to incidents. In the United States, with the growth of the federal government, the police force was naturally going to change. Now, I'm not going to go through an entire history of the US police force, but perhaps the most recent innovation in the police in the United States was in the 1980s and 1990s led by Berkeley's police chief, August Vollmer. The police began to professionalise even more and adopted a more rigorous training programme. But in the 1980s and 1990s, perhaps due to the growth of suburbia, the police force adapted a more community model of policing. 
Domestic issues, such as domestic violence, became more and more of a police concern, rather than domestic disputes being ignored. An adoption of a theory called the broken windows theory of policing was also introduced. The theory posits that visible signs of crime, antisocial behaviour and civil disorder creates an environment that encourages further crime. The theory suggests that policing methods target minor crimes such as vandalism and public drinking to create an atmosphere of law and order, thus preventing more serious crimes. Introduced by social scientists James Wilson and George Kelling, the broken windows theory was perhaps a natural outcome of August Vollmer's move towards community policing. It was first brought into effect officially in the 1990s by William Bratton, the New York City Police Commissioner and Mayor Rudy Giuliani. The theory has been challenged on all sides and seen by some as a failure. The use of ASBOs in Britain and stop, question and frisk have been controversial and their results mixed. But even if they were somewhat failures, it does show the shift towards a more community style of policing. Officers were more concerned with community policing again and engaging with the community was seen as a worthwhile activity. Law enforcement finds itself in a position where Alongside solving big issues, they are increasingly involved in dealing with society's ills. Issues like mental health are being dealt with by the police, even if they aren't equipped to deal with it. It is estimated that a quarter of all police shootings in the US are of a mentally ill person. Issues that once might have been dealt with by community groups, issues like vandalism and general antisocial behaviour that might have once been dealt with by community groups are now dealt with by the police. Where will this lead for the ordinary police officer? Well, specialised units that deal with various things are increasingly being set up. At the moment, things like fraud and organised crime have their own units, but it wouldn't surprise me if these specialised units continued to grow. Issues that cause crime, like mental health and poverty, may become increasingly under the purview of police. Even if not in a law enforcement manner, the broken windows theory may carry on in other forms. Education for children who can't be helped by normal schooling may have police involvement, further support for domestic issues, mental health police, and helping with issues around poverty, which of course is one of the biggest indicators of crime. Critics may say it is further supporting the nanny state. But as the social sciences understands ever more about crime and its causes, surely it's in the police's best interest to deal with the issues. So finally we get onto the fire brigade. Now it is probably the least used and least talked about of the three emergency services. I imagine lots of people have probably called out an ambulance or the police for one thing or another. But how many times have we called out the fire brigade? I would hazard it was a lot less. The only time when the fire brigade gets serious media coverage is when there is a huge event. 9-11 or Grenfell Tower springs to mind. However, for most of history, 
When most structures were made of wood, a fire brigade was far more important than a police force or an ambulance, where everything in the community could be burned down in mere minutes. Fire has long been terrifying, life-threatening and life-changing. One spark could wipe out a neighbourhood. It could kill you, and if it doesn't kill you, it could destroy all your possessions and belongings in minutes. So one has to wonder why it took so long for the fire brigade to be invented. The ability to control fire was a turning point for human evolution. For hundreds of thousands of years, man has tried to control fire. Gradually, this has developed from harnessing wildfires to using some form of flints, transporting fire, maintaining a long fire, and for much of humanity, we have been through a process of gradually more control of fire. While in our minds we perfected our control of fire tens of thousands of years ago, in reality, complete and total control is a very modern invention. And even then, it can be precarious. Even in modern times, fire is so dangerous and so scary that many hours are spent every year through drills, fire alarm practice, and adhering to fire regulations, which, whenever anybody has to do it, feels like a complete waste of time. But such is the power that fire still has over humanity, that there is a constant state of vigilance. And when there isn't, people do die. People give bureaucrats a hard time. But indeed, fire regulation has perhaps been one of the secret successes of bureaucrats in their ability in the modern world to control fire through bureaucratic processes like fire regulations. The history of true firefighting can be dated to the Romans, but as with so much in antiquity, there may have been other firefighting forces that we have no history of. Marcus Licinius Crassus was born into a wealthy family in Rome and acquired an even larger fortune through, as he called it, fire and rapine. With Rome having no fire department and most private dwellings being made of wood, he set up his own fire brigade. 500 men throughout Rome rushed to the sea of any fire but they would not immediately tackle the fire. Crassus, or more likely an associate, would haggle over the price they would set to tackle the fire. In front of an often distressed and distraught owner of the house and properties, they would begin their negotiations. And if they didn't meet the price, they would let the place burn down. Crassus would then offer to buy the burned down dwelling for a fraction of the price. This made Crassus perhaps the wealthiest man in Rome, and with such a large fortune he rose to political prominence, being the man who defeated Spartacus and dominated Rome with Pompey and Caesar. However, the system of fire control was seen as something that couldn't be continued. The Vigiles were formed during the reign of the Emperor Augustus to act as Rome's permanent firefighting service. The body, with a permanent camp and equipment stations dotted around the city, patrolled the streets of Rome each night and also performed some nocturnal police duties to ensure public order. Created in 6 AD because of the risk of fire and high population density and the use of timber in the city, 
In 21 AD, Augustus took control of the fire brigade, and it grew and grew, as fire still affected the city of Rome. The force grew slightly, as they also tasked with patrolling the streets and arresting anything or anybody that looked suspicious at night. I should expect that their equipment was primitive, and sometimes they were reduced to destroying a building and its neighbourhood to prevent the blaze spreading. But they also innovated by limiting the height of large tenant blocks, increasing the space between buildings, and building firewalls, perhaps instituting the world's first fire regulations. The idea of a permanent firefighting service spread to other cities, such as Roman Carthage, Lyon, Ravenna, Constantinople, while the name of the Roman Fire Brigade today is named in honour of these first Roman firefighters, Vigili di Fuco. Firefighting didn't really improve until the 17th century. There were constant fires in Europe during the Middle Ages, while London suffered greatly with fires in 798, 982, 989, 1212, and most famously in 1666. The Great Fire of London in 1666, which, as every school child in England knows, started in a baker's shop on Pudding Lane. You can still visit Pudding Lane today. It is simply a back street and a huge disappointment. Though an interesting tidbit, Pudding Lane is the world's oldest one-way street, with an ordinance of 1617 stating that, that carts were only allowed to go down the street in one direction. The official story of the Great Fire is that only six people died. However, in reality, many poor and lower middle class people might have died. Their deaths just weren't recorded. However, the fire utterly changed the landscape of the city, with the homes of 70,000 out of the 80,000 inhabitants being destroyed. What it means for our story is that fire essentially led to the creation of property insurance. Insurance companies had to start paying out for any house that burned down. Each insurance company therefore formed their own private fire brigade to protect their client's property. These buildings were identified by fire insurance marks. Basically metal plaques affixed to the front of a building. During the middle of the 17th century, there were many inventions that helped to fight fire. The pump and hose was invented and the fire engine further developed. With John Lofting inventing or improving the fire engine or sucking worm engine as he called it. This machine was gradually developed with more and more water able to be pumped through a hose. By 1721, Richard Newsham patented a fire engine capable of delivering 160 gallons of water per minute at a distance of 120 feet by the manual pumping of 4 to 12 men. It was in France where the first universal fire brigade was developed. On the 11th of March 1733, the French government decided that all interventions of the fire brigade was to be free of charge, as people were often waiting for the last minute to call out the fire brigade to try and avoid paying a charge, and by then it was often too late. Back in Britain, and the Great Fire of Edinburgh in 1824 destroyed much of the city's old town 
and led James Braidwood to found the world's first municipal fire service in Edinburgh. However, Braidwood was later killed in the Tudor Street Fire of 1861, when a wall collapsed on top of him. After this, there was much lobbying by liability-laden insurance companies for the government to protect from fire. This led to the setting up of the Metropolitan Fire Brigade in 1866, and then the Local Government Act of 1894, meaning local governments were now responsible for all firefighting. The technology used by firefighters has of course improved over time. From using steam power to the internal combustion engine, telephones to call out the fire brigade, it is a service that has developed with technology. But its universality is perhaps the greatest part. The idea that anybody, rich or poor, old or young, can rely on these services is I think the great invention. Many listening to this podcast may not be the greatest fan of the police force, for example, but the universality, I think, is one thing that can be respected. You could show people 500 years ago some of the inventions we have today, but I think the fire cover we have, considering their experience, is one thing they could understand and appreciate. They would not know, of course, what an iPhone could do, but a universal fire service is something that every human in history who's had to deal with fire could relate to. This is to say nothing of the police or ambulance services. People today don't think about the cost of calling out the fire brigade if there's a fire. If people see a crime, they call the police, even if they don't like the police. And of course, in most countries, you don't really think about the cost of calling out an ambulance. Saving lives, livelihoods, and removing as much fear as humanly possible from the world is why the emergency services are as high as number 82 in my list of the greatest inventions of all time. Thank you.